0: Going to read from 2 Samuel chapter five. Today I'll read verses six through sixteen. As a reminder, this is about King David. You may know David from other stories. You may know, especially about how David was the one that fought against the giant Goliath. In God's strength, he defeated defeated him, but now he has ascended to be king, and we hear these things about the way he behaved as king. Starting in verse 6 of 2 Samuel 5. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David said on that day, "'Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and lame shall not come into the house.'" Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. So David went on and became great. The Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and masons, excuse, cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhiah, Elishama, Eliada, Eliphalet. And the reading there. You might imagine that David, after such a long, hard wait to become king, that once he was finally king, that he might throw a great big party and then go on a very long sabbatical, thinking that maybe he had earned this rest after all of the hardship he had been through. But he didn't. He got right to work pursuing the mission that God had for him to do. The passage that I read today tells several several actions that David took. It's kind of a gathering of different occasions of his life, and it's not exactly chronological, doesn't just go from one thing to the next, but gives a little bit of a broad view of David establishing his reign in the city of Jerusalem. Some of David's actions are good, some of them are not. They serve in this way then to demonstrate that following after Christ requires perseverance in faith. And it's that idea of perseverance that I want to set before you today. I'm going to describe and explain these different accounts of David's actions. but I want you to hear them not just as something as a history lesson and not just as, uh, as curiosities. But I want you to be thinking about what they teach us as followers after Jesus Christ today. About what our task is about how we pursue the mission God has given to us. I'm going to use the words that I read from Paul, his words to Timothy, to describe that that charge that this passage gives to us, a charge to persevere in faith. Paul's words were, fight the good fight of faith. In that, I'm going to urge perseverance in following after Jesus. The first thing I want to explain is how David captured Jerusalem. Outline has three different actions of David, and the first one is that he captured Jerusalem. There's some history here that you need to understand. You might remember that when in many years before God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. He brought them into the land of Canaan. He said, this is the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there were people who were living there already. God said that the coming of Israel would displace those people and displace them for a good reason. Those nations that were in Canaan at that point were well known for their wickedness, They're being uh, idolaters and being uh, uh, completely ignorant and against God. Just as a, for instance, this passage mentions the Jebusites, the ones who were living in Jerusalem at that time. And history uh, describes them as being violent and bloodthirsty people, ones who would take their own children And sacrifice them to their idols. So these are not an innocent people. And I say this just to explain God's command to destroy all of the nations that were in the land of Canaan. That was the task and that was part of the history of what was happening. But they're still here. They're still here in the midst, right in the middle of the the land that belonged to the children of Israel. Which proved a point that Israel had been unable to drive out all of the nations. And in particular, if you look back at the book of Judges, in chapter 1, you'll see that, that they did indeed defeat the Jebusites, the ones who were in Jerusalem, but not completely. They drove them out of Jerusalem for a time, but they came back and occupied the stronghold once again. If you... Uh, this afternoon, if you get a map out and you look at where Jerusalem is, you'll find that it really is right in the middle of the nation of Israel. And here was, in a sense, an enemy stronghold. Not in a sense, it was real. An enemy stronghold right in the middle of their nation. And their presence stood as kind of a mocking reminder of their failure. So when David becomes king He understood that part of his work was to continue to accomplish what God had commanded them to do. So he attacked Jerusalem. Now, this wasn't an easy target. There's a reason the Jebusites had remained there for so long. uh, Jerusalem was built on the high ground. And in military language, that's a position that is easily defended because the approaches to the city are very difficult. Not only that, there were walls that were built up on the top of those uh, of those inclines so that those man-made defenses could also easily repel those who came against them. It was so strong that the Jebusites even taunted David about how, how he would never be able to capture Jerusalem. He said, oh, the blind and the lame could, could turn you back. Uh, that's, a, that, that's to say uh, the weaklings, we could beat you with one arm tied behind our back, we might say today. And they were taunting David about how they would, David would never be able to capture Jerusalem. But David knew who God was. He learned this long ago when he was caring for his parents' sheep. He learned it too when he fought against that giant, Goliath. I want to read some of the words that he spoke to that giant just to remind you the nature of our following after God and the nature of the battle in which we face. This is what David said. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that All the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You might know what happens next if you know that story. You know that David, a young man, came at a trained soldier, and all that David brought was a sling and stones. And he shot that against the the giant, hitting him in the head and killing him. And it is very interesting what David did next. He did indeed kill Goliath. He cut off his head with his own sword and he took it to Jerusalem, says 1 Samuel 17. Now, why would he do that? It was still inhabited by the Jebusites at this point. This is is not where King Saul was. It was where the Jebusites were holed up in their stronghold. It's as if David was saying to the Jebusites, you need to know this as well. There is a God in Israel and that he fights for his people and he delivers without sword or spear. And it's as if David was saying, I'll be back. I'll be back. Here he is now as king of Israel. He's come to do the work that God had for the children of Israel to do. Today we might say he had some good intel about the city of Jerusalem. He knew that there were ways into the city that didn't mean he had to have a siege or come at them with ladders or siege engines to fight against a a very strong a defensive position, he knew that the city had dug tunnels down from their high place, down to where they could get water. Because if they were cut off from water, that's kind of the end. If, if a siege can cut off water, the people can last for a week or, or maybe longer, but sooner or later, that city is going to fall. So David said that whoever will lead a band of soldiers up through those tunnels into Jerusalem and captures Jerusalem will be the captain of my armies. Any guesses who that was? This text doesn't tell us, but later First Chronicles does. It was Joab. <laughs> well, David... Understood what God had for him to do. This was not a time for him to have a party. It wasn't a time for rest. It wasn't a time for sitting back on his accomplishments. He had work to do. So he got about doing it. I'll say more about this later, but let me pause here and say let's begin to apply this. I'm telling you this not just for history. It's a great story, isn't it? But it's there for more. God told us these things for our spiritual benefit. Part of the spiritual benefit is that, that God has given us work to do. And that there are enemies that we fight against. And we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And spiritual strongholds. That is the work of the Christian and the Christian church. And part of perseverance is to be about the work that God has given us to do. A little pen in that. I'm going to come back to that. Let's go on to the second event that is recorded here. David capitalized Jerusalem. Uh, I tried to think of one word that, uh, uh, that would, could, could summarize this. And so he made Jerusalem the capital. He capitalized Jerusalem. He had been ruling in Hebron, but again, if you look at a map, rather than being centralized where Jerusalem is, Hebron is it's pretty far down in the south of the of the tribe of Judah, it would not be very accessible to the rest of the nation. But Jerusalem sits right on the border of Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes, right in the center. So to speak, of the nation, so it was easily uh, centralized, so that a government for the nation could could go about its business. There's some strategic reasons that it seems that David would choose Jerusalem to be the capital. But I, I would also have you see that that David, as a king, was interested not just in the political well-being of his reign, but he was also interested in the spiritual well-being for himself and really for the entire nation. He sets an example of of godly leadership here in that he wants the worship of God to be centralized for the children of Israel. Take some explaining as well, because in David's day, there weren't church buildings in every little town all throughout the nation of Israel. Instead, the people of God were to come together in one particular place to worship God. That was where the tabernacle was. In David's day, it had been in Hebron, and we're going to learn in a few chapters that he moves that, to Jerusalem. He wanted the worship of God to be accessible to the nation. He wanted the worship of God to be accessible to himself as king. He wanted to be there so that he could be hearing from God, so that he could be part of the worship. I want to remind you just how significant it was that the tabernacle was given to the children of Israel. It is loaded with significance because this is where God said, my presence is among my people. And he demonstrated that in in this physical form, the tent of meeting is called sometimes, the tabernacle. It represented that presence of the Lord. It represented where God himself would meet with his people and he, he would... He would proclaim the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifices of those days. So Jerusalem came to be known as a centralized location, a capitalized city, so to speak. It was centralized for the reign of David, It's known as the city of David because of that, but also because of the spiritual significance of the worship of God. So it is also known as the city of peace. In fact, David renamed it Jerusalem, which means city of peace. It had been named uh, uh, Jebus for the Jebusites, now the city of peace. This too makes us think of Jesus, does it not? Makes us think of Jesus who is our peace. Makes uh, us think of Jesus who who came and did battle against Satan were our souls. Having redeemed us by his death on the cross, he made peace with God so that we as sinners could come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's put a pin in that as well and go on to the third occasion that is mentioned here. David built up Jerusalem. I tried to think of a C word here. The uh, uh, best I could come up with was construction. Uh, so if you want to use that, you can. But uh, I like the idea of build up Jerusalem. It's Psalm 147 uses that term. David built up Jerusalem, including his own palace. Now, if you're like me, I, I imagine that when you think of David, the what you think of most of all is that David was a man of war. He fought against Goliath. He uh, he was the subject of songs. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. But as part of his work as king, David was involved in more than that. We've already begun to see that in the... The wisdom that he shows in moving the capital to the city of Jerusalem. Some practical reasons for that. Both politically and spiritually. So he shows wisdom in in building that up. But there's also foresight in understanding that a centralized capital is going to need development and so these verses describe how David works to build up Jerusalem and it mentions especially a region of the city called the Milo now remember I said that the city was was built up on the hills and that uh, that that was a defensible position because of that Well, when you're built up on the hills, you don't have resources nearby to build with. Those have to be carted up to the top of the hill. It's not like Minecraft, where you can just click a few mouse's mouse buttons and and all of a sudden your workers are carrying stones up to the top of the mountain so that they can build walls. Now, this is hard work. It took planning and expense to do this. So they built terraces, the terrace walls, and had to bring resources up then to fill those terraces, stones and dirt that would later become the area where you could build other buildings for administration for living quarters. This passage also says that David built a house for himself as well. Actually, he had help in doing this. Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent uh, sent cedar wood, a very uh, uh, valued type of wood, uh, known throughout the region. He also sent craftsmen, masons, and carpenters, and they came and they built a house for, for David. And I can imagine how this would be so meaningful to him because he had been on the run for so long. He had not had a house in which to live. Here, one was provided for him. And in this generous act of Hiram, David sees God's hand at work. The text describes how David interpreted this. He said, now he knew... That God was blessing him. That God was establishing him as king over Israel. Verse 12 puts it this way. That he knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. And that he, that is God, had exalted his kingdom. That's God's kingdom, not David's. uh, For the sake of his people. That's God's people. Israel and David here is reflecting on his role as a leader of God's people as if he is rightfully not just king as he really was but a servant of God and he approaches his work not as someone high and mighty who has accomplished all these things by his own might But he understands that God has provided all of these things. Well, that's what he said when he fought against Goliath, wasn't it? That the victory wasn't his, it was God's. And even this building up of Jerusalem is not his, it's God's. And he acknowledges that as being coming from the Lord's hands. These actions demonstrate David's perseverance in doing the will of God, even in the face of the hardships that he faced. Unfortunately, not everything David did expresses perseverance. Not everything David did expresses Christian character. In verses 13 through 16, it tells us that David took more concubines and wives And had more children, 11 are listed and named here. I find it very interesting that the writer would include this information here. On on the whole, the chapter has been giving this big picture of David's perseverance in the work that God had given him to do. He understands that that God had settled him and established him. And in that big picture, he shows wisdom in the choices that he makes, and he shows uh, a, a diligence and a, a, a get to itness that uh, that he that he demonstrates in, in going about what God had given him to do and, uh, and and now we have this description of David multiplying wives and concubines the concubine was someone that a king would sleep with, but didn't have all of the rights as a wife. Now, we've already learned that David had wives before this. He had six wives already. And now he takes more. They. They jotted that note down. I wasn't sure whether to say that with an ex- exclamation point or a question mark. David took more wives? Or in astonishment, David took more wives. Come on. Well, what can we say of this? Well, like I said when I described his six wives earlier, this is worldly wisdom. This is not godliness. This is not the wisdom that comes from God. This is worldly wisdom. In David's day and age, marriages were made so that there could be political alliances. So worldly wisdom would suggest that a king would take lots of wives and by those marriages, we would have an allegiance with this country and this nation and over here. And one could even reason that, the, uh, that many children that David had, from a worldly perspective, could be looked on as signs of, of, uh, of virility, of, gods, of the gods of the nations blessing him. That would be very much in keeping with some of the fertility cults that surrounded Israel in those days. They would have said, oh, look at David, look at all of his children, that's a man we want to follow. But the difficulty is, God forbade kings to take multiple wives. He said back in Deuteronomy, when you have a king, do not multiply Wives, And even warned that if you do so, that those many wives will persuade you away from following after the one true God. David here begins to show a weakness of his own character. A weakness that will crop up over and over again. And I'll add here that not only did God forbid kings to have multiple wives, but this rests back on a creation mandate, that marriage is only between one man and one woman, not multiple partners. God forbids polygamy completely. For David and for today, polygamy is a sign of lawlessness. It is a going against the commands of God. It's also a sign of a lack of self-discipline. One commentary said that David is beginning to manifest a serious character flaw, an inability to curb his sexual appetites. As I said, this is a flaw that runs through the rest of his life, and it brings consequences of great sorrow and great destruction. So what are we to make of this? Let me back up and pull those pins again, and start with the positive and come back to this warning. This chapter provides many great lessons for today. The Lord Jesus Christ has saved you from your sins and he has saved you to live for him. He has saved you and commissioned you to carry out work for him. He has given you gifts so that you are able to do what he has asked you to do. And he has sent you out to do work that would be glorifying to him and a blessing to others. Let each one of you persevere in that work. Does it involve effort? Yes. Go in God's strength, not in your own. Does it involve wisdom and planning? Yes. Go appealing to the Lord who is wisdom personified. Is it costly? Yes. Pray that the Lord will supply everything that you need. Pray that the Lord will supply everything necessary and and more beyond what you can even ask or imagine go persevering in faith, fighting that good fight of faith, which is to persevere in faith in Christ. You can apply this corporately as well, for surely God has given a mission to the church. Has not Christ our King commissioned us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? He has, hasn't he? And doesn't it seem, and maybe you're like like me in this, doesn't it seem that, that those unbelieving in the world have the high ground and that they've entrenched themselves and have built up walls against anything that we might argue or bring against them? How in the world can we ever take the gospel to them, whoever that them is? They are too strong for us. battle is not ours, it's the Lord's, isn't it? If the Lord has sent us out to do this work, then the battle is his. So let's go in his strength. Let us go with a, a grasp of that mission that God has given. And let us persevere in it. Let us continue corporately to fight the fight of faith. And learn from David's sin. Perseverance in faith means that you are also going to fight against temptation and sin. The Bible often warns about the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You might remember that Peter calls Satan an enemy. A lion who is roaring, prowling, looking to devour you. God calls you to be steadfast and watchful against temptation. And as David does, by God's grace, continue on, and as this text says, goes on to do great things. As David perseveres in faith, it is not without stumbling and falling. It is not without sin. And so, too, you need to hear that sin does crouch at the door, waiting to uh, to pounce on you and to destroy you. As you focus on the mission that God has given to you, you need to know that there are traps laid for you. Traps laid by Satan himself by your own evil desires. But by faith in Jesus Christ, you may persevere. You will persevere. It's based on those promises of God that I urge you to depend upon God's grace, that you sink your trust into Jesus Christ Pray that he will strengthen you to persevere. Pray that he will enable you to repent when you sin. And as you go, fight. Fight of faith. Let's pray. God, we need your strength. For we are often so weak in our application of your word into our lives. We're often so involved in in pleasing our own desires and our own lack of self-discipline shows up over and over again. Instead, Oh Lord, I pray that you would cause us to persevere in faith. We stand upon the rock of Jesus Christ and recognize that that no one can snatch us out of your hand. Lord, we long to be faithful in our execution, our obedience. So God, help us to persevere in that, fighting the fight of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. We'll close by singing Psalm 147a. Uh, We'll sing these words, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. And... Uh, We'll sing that with with faith, praying that the Lord would build up the spiritual Jerusalem, the people of God, the church. It also warns us that uh, there are some that place their trust in horses and chariots and weapons of this world, uh, but our trust is in the Lord. As you sing it, make that uh, your profession, your trust in the Lord. Let's stand and sing Psalm 147a.